and welcome to this live edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor at Investors Chronicle. And today, as always, I'm joined by David Thorpe, contributing editor on Asset Allocator. David, hello. How are you doing? Hi, Dave. I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's been a busy, busy couple of weeks, but uh, this one mm. is shining, which makes it uh, all the easier to get up in the morning. Yes, that does help. Better times. Um, but perhaps to turn to a uh, maybe less kind of optimistic subject, let's jump into some uh, database chats. Um, and you've been, or you and the kind of asset allocated team have been looking at UK equities. Um, UK equity funds, of course, mm-hmm. not been so popular in recent years. But what's actually been going on in the DFM database? Yeah, sure. So we began compiling the, the database in, in 2018. And uh, since then, I mean, there hasn't been any fund that's gained massive traction in a positive direction. But four UK equity funds have tied in terms of being the biggest drop in DFM ownership since then. All four of those have been sold by a net of four DFMs since that time. And the four are... Uh, Lion Trust's giant special situations fund, which in 2018 was owned by 11 allocators and is now owned by 7. The 91 UK Alpha Fund is now owned by 5. And J. O'Hambro UK Opportunities is now held by just 1. But spare a thought for the guys at Lazard, their UK Omega Fund has been sold by 4 DFMs and is now owned by none. The Man GLG uh, fund, which is run by Henry Dixon, UK undervalued assets, mm. that's dropped from the, the portfolios of three of the allocators we cover and to now appear in four. Although it should be said with that fund that it has been soft closed for, for uh, a little while. It's also a, a, the archetypal, really deep value mandate. And as such, it may not be too much of a surprise to see it fall somewhat from favour during a period when, obviously, growth was so much in vogue. Mm. But the story is less clear-cut with some of the other funds. I mean, the the Lion Trust mandate that I mentioned (coughs) certainly has a a bit of a growth focus, Um, and two of the sellers were in the second half of 2022 and one in the first quarter of this year. Performance doesn't seem to have been a particular issue. The fund, which is it's 4.8 billion in size, and it was top quartile in 2020 and 2021, and on a on a five-year view. But what might be raising the collective eyebrow of the allocators that recover is the stonking overweight to industrial stocks. I do use that word stonking far too often, <laughs> but it is a, it is a good one. And Lion Trust's exposure to industrials is at 28%, whereas the average in the IA UK oil company sector is 16%, and for the FTSE oil share, it's 11.5%. So they're really taking a, a, a bet on, on that uh, particular segment of the UK and I'd be curious to hear from our listeners and readers what they what they think of that but the funds which have performed best over the past year or so have all had overweights to the consumer goods section uh, notably 91 UK special seats which has an exposure of 45% there I mean in the pandemic time industrials was probably the place to be we were all locked in we couldn't access services so uh instead of going to the pub we bought exercise bikes which we didn't use and dragged mm-hmm. hands or maybe that was just me very well used 
Uh, as they, yeah. Absolutely, the cans were certainly well used. Um, but since, uh, obviously, restrictions came to an end, consumer demand has shifted back towards the services that we, mm. we couldn't access before. That's probably one of the things that's keeping UK inflation stickier. The supply chain backlogs, which created the initial wave of inflation, have gone away because they inevitably would. <clears throat> but the services sector... Uh, it's very hard to get rid of the inflation there because of structural issues in the economy around um, labour shortages, for example. But anyway, back to the database. The 91 UK Alpha Fund, as I mentioned, had four sales, but most of those happened towards the tail end of 2022 and really coincided with the announcement that the fund manager, Simon Brazier, yep. was leaving the fund and the company. And just incidentally... The most popular UK equity fund remains Linzel Train UK Equity. Uh, Nick has certainly been in the uh, in the news in the last few days, mm. um, it, but it's actually had a net sale of one since we launched the database. But it's still owned by mm. by nine DFMs, and it is worth noting that although the Linzel Train funds have had performance issues, shall we say? Uh, over the past year, the fund has returned 12%, while the IA UK oil company sector in which it sits has returned too. Yeah, they've had quite a resurgence, the Linzel Train team, after, I remember maybe a couple of years ago, they, you know, the Global Fund as well had mm-hmm. quite a poor run, you know, they sort of missed, they missed sort of a value bounce back, but also they missed kind of a, a growth resurgence at different points of market sure. rotation. Um, but I suppose one thing I wanted to ask about was... Um, how things are shaping up in terms of an investment style, because you mentioned, you know, say, say line trust special situations. I always think of that as a very big kind of, you know, quality play with their economic advantage process and so on. Um, likewise, you know, on the other side of the coin, I suppose, the Man GLG fund is, like you say, it's more kind of value focused. Um, but are we are we seeing any kind of interesting, notable trends when it comes to whether DFMs are jumping more for kind of a, a, a value focus or more of a, a growth play, that kind of thing? Well, really, where the trend is, which, again, may or may not be surprising, is that the only sort of funds uh, that are gaining any sort of ground within the UK market are the are anything that has a sustainable in the in the in the title those ones have have done uh, those ones have done a little bit um <clears throat> there are there are a, uh that's that's where the that's where the the pattern has has been really um if they if they have sustainable they've been able to gain traction but of course that has to be seen in the context of they're coming from a a lower um mm. they're coming from a lower base i suppose yeah. uh, if that's the way to to put it but um there have been uh, there have been some gains there. It'll be interesting to see if that continues into the into the you know into the future because we have had ESG do slightly less well. But according to the database, the Line Trust Sustainable Future UK Growth Fund has added three new DFMs since 2018. I mean, those are net figures, so they may have had more more buy-in, but some sell out. While the Royal London Sustainable Leaders Fund went from one to three. DFM owners in that time. Away from that, as I say, there's not really a pattern. Um, there's a little bit of traction, I suppose, for the value or deep value funds. Mm. Hugh Sargent at River and Mercantile, his recovery fund, Crooks UK Special Sits, although 
the reasons for that funds out inflows may also be a special situation, which is that they got a, a new manager, Richard Penny, who's quite well known in the industry, and Schroeder's uh, well-established recovery fund all had a gain of one new mm. uh, DFM over that time. But much of the change there has actually come from within value, as in people mm. moving from one to the other. Maybe it's a, a generational change because, yeah. for example, Richard Buxton's Jupiter UK Alpha Fund uh, dropped from two to, to, to one DFM. Uh, Polar Capital's UK Value Ops Fund, uh, managed by uh, George Godber and Georgie Hamilton, that has dropped from the portfolio of two of the allocators we cover and is still owned by two. Mm-hmm. So it's really a move within um, within uh, the, the value kind of categories rather than towards value, mm. but with, with other managers gaining, gaining ground. Within the growth space... Um, Unicorn UK Growth and Bailey Gifford UK Alpha, they've they've gained basically a, 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 a DFM each. But one that caught my eye is the JP Morgan UK Equity Plus Fund. The reason it caught my eye, I suppose, is because uh, in 2018 it wasn't owned by any DFM, it's now owned by two. Given the size of the fund house from which it originates, the size of the fund at still less than 100 million is probably... Uh, a bit of a surprise, but in performance terms, it's top quartile over five years, having returned more than twice the sector average. All of its top ten holdings are, you know, the predictable FTSE, mega caps, your shells, mm. BPs, Unilever. And the reason it may not have grown beyond that 100 million mark, well, somebody more cynical than me might say it slightly resembles a tracker fund. Um... The other fund that's maybe made a bit of progress is Slater Growth, which is now owned by three DFMs on our database, and that's an increase of one over the past five years. Uh, older viewers may uh, know the name because Mark Slater, who, who runs the fund, is the son of the storied late city figure Jim Slater, who was uh, basically a household name in Britain in the 70s uh, as a, as an investor and fund manager. Um, his son is, I think, a more understated character, but of the father, many of our older readers may have a, an anecdote or two. Mm. I, I suppose one other point just to mention, and we have kind of discussed this before, but what stood out to me as well with the, if we look at the sort of activity on the UK fund front is, uh, particularly in the early days of, allocators database and for much of the last few years you did have kind of four behemoth funds kind of dominating mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what dfms hold so the lion trust fund 91 uk alpha lindsay trains funds and then the henry dixon vehicle you you mentioned but perhaps now we're seeing a bit more kind of dispersal and um i suppose that will influence kind of um how DFM portfolios get on a bit more because there's there's just less of that herding around, you know, the biggest names. Sure, indeed. The total number of UK equity funds held has gone up over that um, five years from, from 48 to 52. Um, now, you know, may, maybe that's proportionally, you know, more fun, funds have been launched in that time, so maybe it's the same proportion of the total number of funds is owned. But but it has gone up, as you say, those, those four have 
are, are slightly less uh, dominant now. Maybe, and, and what's interesting is that that isn't really a style thing. The um, <clears throat> a couple of the funds that you mentioned uh, are are very much uh, in the value camp, and a couple that you mentioned are very much in the in the in the growth camp. There is an element of of idiosyncratic stuff. I mean, Henry Dixon's fund is sort of soft closed, as I mentioned, and the ninety one fund. As discussed, the, the manager, the manager left. Um, mm. But it is interesting. It, it is an interesting point that uh, allocators are looking further across the the horizon, and that does mean that I suppose there'll be a greater dispersal or distribution of performance uh, from the UK equity bit of their book. Mm. Um, another thing that's maybe anecdotally interesting is. Um, for the first time since we began compiling the database, the number, the proportion of capital allocated to UK uh, funds is in balanced portfolios is lower than that allocated to uh, US equity funds. So maybe that's a, a longer-term structural uh, factor. The number, um, the numbers are. Um, I think it's fifteen percent in the in is now in. In UK, that's that's an average, obviously, uh, compared with uh, seventeen for uh, US equity funds. Mm. Um, so the home fires are being firmly doused by <laughs> the allocators <laughs> that we cover. So that home bias is finally receding somewhat. But um... yes, indeed. So just to, to give the precise numbers, there, the UK equity average exposure in May is fourteen point seven. And that's down from seventeen percent a year ago. So that's many billions of pounds when you when you work out it like that. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. exposure is sixteen point five, and that's up a little on the fifteen percent of a year ago. And what's interesting there, of course, is that over the past year, U.S. equities have beaten U.S. equities. So it's not just a, a performance mm. thing. You know, the U.S. the U.K. allocation has had a headwind in performance terms and the U.S. allocation has had a tailwind, but the U.S. has still passed it out. So it is really DFM activity that's that's driving it. Yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out given, you know, we've finally seen greater challenges to the kind of dominant growth stocks of the last decade or so and whether, you know, because you would perhaps... Um, you could be forgiven for assuming that perhaps people would actually finally take more interest in UK equities now because we've seen, you know, the FTSE 100 was one of the few markets that managed to kind of keep its head above water last year. Sure, indeed. Um, indeed, and um, the uh, the composition of the UK being maybe more value-oriented stocks, less of the tech stocks, the things that were negatives for the market may now be being positive, mm. but nobody's thought of DFMs. <laughs> I suppose another thing to bear in mind is just the, uh, obviously it's been quite a gloomy time again for mm. UK equities if we think yeah. about all the, you know, the companies, um, chief executives and so on are thinking perhaps they can do better, get better remuneration, uplift the shares by simply porting across to the US <coughs> or porting across to another market. In, indeed, um, indeed, this is uh, the, the UK markets missed out on a few IPOs, but also companies such as CRH have uh, moved across. And CRH is is sort of an Irish company rather than a great British institution, but it would have been the logical thing for 
an, e- an easiest thing to do if you, your headquarters is in Dublin to, to list in London mm. or have a Jew listing in London and Ireland, which is what it did. Now it's taking itself off both the Irish and UK market and, and going mm. to the US. And what's interesting there is CRH makes, you know, cement. So it's not even like a, a whizzy kind of tech. Mm. And it still yeah, thinks... It's it not an animal a, or anything e- like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And it still thinks it will get a better uh, better uh, mm. treatment over there, uh, which which is perhaps a really... Um, concerning thing for the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, yeah. So moving seamlessly further across to the US, um, another thing you guys have been looking at recently is kind of US government bond exposure. You know, clearly we have some of those um, worries at the minute about the uh, what's going on with the sort of the debt ceiling and so on. Um, but you know, DFMs do kind of turn to that market. So what? What are you kind of seeing there in terms of exposures and, you know, DFM's preferences when it comes to the likes of treasuries? Sure. Well, I mean, perhaps intuitively 100% of, of treasury exposure uh, is, is held in, in passive funds mm. and 77% of guilt, conventional guilt holdings are in passive. I mean, look, it makes, it makes sense because there isn't supposed to be credit risk with those things, although the debt ceiling in the US is adding a flick of uh, credit risk to that um, but that, I guess that's why it, it makes sense but there are actively managed guild funds out there uh, the most popular being Allianz Guild Yield which is run by Mike Little Riddle and owned by four DFMs the most popular guild fund overall is Vanguard UK Government Bond Index which would be expected while the most popular treasury fund is uh, Vanguard US Treasury Index and that's actually owned by 13 of the allocators that we cover which makes it one of the overall most popular funds on our database and it's actually picked up four new DFM buyers since the fourth quarter of 2022 so uh, perhaps not for the first time the drinks are on Vanguard <laughs> I suppose um, another kind of interesting dividing line and I've always kind of seen this in, in the database over the years is um, just that split of whether DFMs prefer sort of treasuries or gilts and where they go and you know there are all sorts of kind of interesting um, I suppose kind of currency considerations there and hedging costs can sometimes be a, be a big deal as well um, so, uh, y- yes, yeah. indeed. I mean, um, the, I mean, if you if you owned uh, treasuries for for quite some time, you had uh, you had the the, the uplift of um, getting paid getting paid in in dollars. Uh, who knows what that will be? Whether that will uh, whether that will continue, or indeed with the debt ceiling thing, and with uh, President Trump is saying that um, maybe, you know, the well, he's not President Trump now, but the candidate for President <laughs> Trump saying that uh, he may well consider just not, not you know, not, not, not repaying anything. Um, so that does introduce that element of, of credit risk that wasn't, that wasn't there before. Um, but the gilt market has indeed been volatile in its, in its own right. Uh, last year we had the the mini budget thing, which set new records for volatility. We thought we'd all mm. be able to uh, let that recede into uh, into our memories, and then along comes uh, well events of of recent days, mm. which have shown that um, guilds guilds remain very volatile, and the yields have actually ported back towards the levels they were of the mini budget, albeit 
for very different reasons. Um, this time, it's a mixture of, well, the economy is growing by more than we expected, so why do we need the safe haven of a guilt? But also, uh, inflation could be higher, which makes higher for longer, which makes guilt very unattractive. Um, one of the ironies, actually, of the, the debt ceiling issue is that... Um, um, U.S. Treasury bills are often, and the dollar uh, is often uh, viewed as a safe haven type asset uh, in times of stress. Uh, so even if Treasuries cause the stress, they may also be the cure uh, for the for the stress, which is uh, mm. which which is ironic. Whereas nobody, nobody, I think, is any more buying uh, buying guilt as um, as a cure for the. For the, for the stress, so um, that's that's uh, that's maybe where the asset classes differ from each other. But as you say, currency risk and hedging costs. If you don't want the currency risk, are the kind of impediments to owning to, to owning to owning those? Um, we also looked at as part of that, obviously uh, linkers. Uh, now, <coughs> I've never been able to understand uh, how how linkers um, how linkers work, um, but. Um, in terms of what uh, DFMs do, which is far more interesting and, and relevant than uh, than what I think, um, the most widely owned linkers fund is LNG's Global Index Linked Bond Fund, which appears in seven of the portfolios we cover, mm. and it's had a net of two new buyers since the start of 2023, which is interesting because one might have thought that linkers um, moment in the in the sun had had mm. passed but but there you go um and there are nine active index linked bond funds used in our database but none owned by more than one or two of the dfms so that elgin uh, fund has really mm. uh, cornered the the market there um but the average exposure to linkers hasn't really changed it's basically 2.32% and it's been around the 2.3% mark uh, for each of the past three quarters. Maybe that indicates people aren't trying to be tactical with when to own linkers. They just allocate a, a slug to it and hope it'll do its job mm. when the time comes. That would be interesting because I suppose you could just have a kind of hold it as the, you know, within the mantra of I should diversify within my bond exposure. But, uh, mm -hmm. but I would instinctively see a, a linker as kind of as being a tactical position, given you know you you alluded to, you kind of want to hold them as inflation expectations are moving up, but then they tend to have quite chunky levels of duration. So you actually want to almost get out before in, in, inflation in, triggers things like rate rises. Indeed, and I mean, look, one of the things that happened in twenty twenty two was the um, the Ukraine war, which shows how quickly mm. you know inflation expectations can change. So I guess owning some all of the time prepares you for for that risk, um, but also um, linkers prices don't really move on what actually happens to inflation, as you alluded to. They move on what people expect to happen mm -hmm. with inflation, and that can make timing really difficult because um, um, they can be pricing in an outcome that hasn't yet happened, but. Are you buying them for the outcome that hasn't yet happened, or are you buying them for some other reason? So it is it is difficult, but it is it is certainly something that we'd love to hear more from readers about why they why they own um, why or how they own uh, linkers. Is it is it tactical or is it a structural thing for the same reason that you own some some gold, for example? 
Yeah, yeah, some some interesting dividing lines there. Um, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for, um, but hopefully some very interesting and um, provoking discussion points. Uh, I'd just say thank you for uh, to David for joining, and thank you for watching. <laughs>